0: Well, I'm not sure how things play out for you, uh, but for me, September is more the first of the year than January is. And so this is sort of go time. Uh, we're still, we've got some vacation stuff going on here, but you can see people starting to file back in. The ministry season is getting ready to start. Uh, at One Church One Day, I, uh, I made two points arguing out of Luke chapter 10, uh, verses one through nine. Uh, I said, first of all, Look, we have a huge opportunity that's given to us to be part of what God is doing in this world, to be part of his kingdom work. It's a great privilege. We can be part of something that's going to matter forever. We have an opportunity to tell people about God's love and grace, and we have an opportunity to be the hands and feet of the kingdom of God, to love and serve and and to fight oppression and injustice and 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 to be ambassadors of God's grace and uh, and and love and we talk here about the mission of Christ Church we say our mission is to lead people into life-changing relationships with God and others by proclaiming the good news and engaging in good works well I, I stand by that and that's a great way that we sort of align ourselves but it would be theologically more precise to recognize that God has a mission right? Colossians 1, he is reconciling all things to himself. And God's mission has a church. (laughs) We're not meeting just to meet, right? This is, we we don't gather just to gather, right? There is an agenda, there is an assignment. God is doing something and we have a chance to be part of his mission in this world. Well, I I then went on and, and spoke a little bit about deep. And I did that in particular, so Deep is the new series that's going to start in a couple of weeks. And uh, it's moving from surface to substance, and, and it's an opportunity to, in, in a world that is increasingly, I'm arguing, the current is getting faster and faster. We need to have an inner world that's going to shape our outer world. And so that's, that's sort of what we're looking at, but I just, I'm never... I'm not convinced that people understand why we do these fall series. And I think some people think, well, it's just to sort of get everybody back in and, and ramp up, get the small groups back up and running. Yeah, sort of. The purpose that we, the reason we do these, the reason I, I write a book and that we have video and we have daily readings and we have, you know, all kinds of additional bells and whistles to try and make this simple. The reason we do this is so that you will invite your friends to come be part of a discussion for six weeks. It's to create opportunities for you to sort of reach outside of your own sphere of comfort and invite other people to come alongside. And so we try and make it very, very user-friendly. All you have to do, uh it's not add water, you just have to add friends, right? But we give you the questions to ask, we give you the answers to the questions, we give you everything to help you say, why don't you reach out to friends, family, neighbors, colleagues, invite them in for a six-week discussion. So, I spoke a little bit about that, looking at this parable in Luke 13. Uh, Today, we're continuing in Luke 13, and I want to be really clear what we're not doing. And that is, we are not inviting people to be religious. Jesus hated religion. He's the most anti-religious religious religious leader you can find now the only reason that word makes sense that sentence makes sense is because the word religion gets used in a lot of different ways it's a complicated word to define for our purposes i want to define religion today as anything that we do however good prayer bible study giving money uh helping other people Anything that we do, if we're doing it in order to earn God's favor or feel better than other people. Okay? Jesus hated religion. And, uh, he is a big critic of religion. And I'm going to argue that that puts him in, uh, sort of lockstep with some other big critics of religion, namely, uh, the sort of the holy trinity of militant atheism of the, of the 20th century, uh, Freud, Marx, and Nietzsche. But let's uh, let's look at our text here. So Luke 13 beginning with verse 10. On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues. So the Sabbath, for the Jews, Saturday, uh, Christians it's Sunday. We've changed the date because Jesus rose from the dead on a Sunday and and argue that he rose from the dead on a Sunday because Christ's resurrection is the first fruits of the work that God is doing going forward in terms of reconciling and fixing everything. And so that happened on the first day. It's a work day. And and so it's a Sunday. We recognize Sunday as uh, the Sabbath. important to understand this passage. For the right wing of the Jewish leadership council in the first century— Nothing was more sacred than Sabbath rules. So they argued that, that the pattern of the Sabbath was given to them out of creation. So it came to them even before the law that they got from Moses. So this is this is the super sacred spiritual rules that we're going to get. And so they were vigilant about protecting uh, the, the Sabbath. They had rules on top of rules on top of rules to make sure nobody got close to it. And to this day the Orthodox Jews continue to have all kinds of rules to make sure that you do not violate the Sabbath. There's thousands of them. So you can turn on a fluorescent light, but you can't turn on an incandescent light, right? I mean, just the the rules just go in every direction, and, and some of them are very, very bizarre. Well, they were pretty bizarre back in the first century. So, "...on a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues, and a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years." So, he's in the synagogue teaching. This is not the temple. There's one temple. Big, massive. Solomon built the first one. There was a small one after the exile. Then Herod was building the big, massive one at the time of Christ. 10,000 workers working for 40 years to build it. That was the, the that was, that was the epicenter of Jewish life. It was in Jerusalem. You had to go there to offer a sacrifice for sins. But every village had a little, Synagogue, a little. If there were more than a few Jewish families, they had a building where they would meet on the Sabbath and and for other reasons. So Jesus goes in uh, as a rabbi into the synagogue on a Sabbath and he's teaching. And this woman appears who um, has been crippled by a spirit for eighteen years. So this is a long time she has been suffering. Now. The Greek literally reads that she has a spirit of infirmity, and it's a little confusing, but I, I suspect this is nothing, there's nothing demonic here, it's just, it's saying she has really been beaten down by life. So she's, she's disfigured by, uh, by this disease, she's in pain, she's probably ostracized, she might be depressed, right, I mean, it's just, it, everything has not been working for her, and it's not been working for a long time. Uh, and just in the margins, let me note that some of you say, well, that sort of describes my life. Not this particular situation, but I'm getting beaten down, and I don't seem to be able to catch a break either. So um, she comes into the synagogue, bent over, could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward, and he said to her, woman, you are set free from your um, infirmity. Then he put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised God. So, Jesus is always going to those who are on the fringes, those who are on the margins, those that others are probably overlooking. He goes to her, and he brings her uh, hope and healing. And we've, we've seen this before. <laughs> it seems like everywhere Jesus goes, right, he can't really help himself. People, the sick, get healed. Uh, As a pastor, I've learned that you can't go to Jesus for counsel on what to say at a funeral because Jesus never spoke at a funeral. Because every time he goes to a funeral, the people come back to life. So you don't get any help from Jesus on that. He just seems to have this unique ability. So uh, let let me, again, just acknowledge that some of you are thinking, well, I would, you know, I would um, praise God. I would believe. I would be more invested. I would be certainly happier if some of the goodwill that Christ extended to her was extended to me. I'm looking for that kind of a break. Uh, So let me just remind you what we've already uh, sort of discovered about the miracles that we find in the Gospels. If you read the Gospels, there's lots of miracles. Where Jesus goes, there's lots of miracles. Not really so much in any other part of the Bible. A little bit at the beginning of the Bible, but there's not a lot of miracles happening in the Bible except around Jesus. And there's a lot of miracles there. And, and remember, I argued before that that there is a purpose behind the miracles. And, and the, the one of the biggest purposes is that they serve as a proof for who Jesus is. There were lots of other 30-year-olds trying to get started in the whole rabbi circuit. Jesus gets a hearing. Jesus draws a crowd, unlike the crowds that anyone else can draw, because he's got the ability to make sick people well, and he can multiply food, and he can calm the storm, right? Right? He, he can do all these things that nobody else can do. This was, this was the, the whole amazed series. There, there was this whole group of things that after Christ he was baptized, emerged from the desert, began his ministry. There was this whole set of miracles that happened in sort of short order that demonstrate his power over evil and sickness and sin and darkness and nature. And they show that he's not just another rabbi. So the miracles are offered as a proof of who Jesus is. Additionally... The miracles are offered um, as a pointer to the way things are supposed to be. They're not simply a proof. And we can say they're not simply a proof because if they were just a proof, right, then Jesus would maybe do something spectacular just to prove that he's God. Like I mean, that's what sort of some of the Marvel superheroes do. Right? They're like, well, I'll prove to you my x-ray vision. I'll blow the top off that mountain. Right? Watch me, watch me do that with my, with my eyes. And there's, there's proof. But with Jesus, the miracles are always demonstrations of the way things are supposed to be. So they're pointers back to the way the world was before there was sin. And they're pointers ahead to the way things will be when he restores it. Right? The world that we see we, and we have to remind ourselves of this. The world that we see is not the good world God created. It's a world ravaged by sin and, and evil. And the, and the miracles of Jesus are, are pointing us back to what things looked like before sin devastated things, and they're, they're pointing forward to the way things will be when he restores everything. And, and in that sense... The miracles of Jesus are not, um, they're not a break. They're not a, uh, you know, they're not a, a a hesitation in the natural order of things. Jurgen Moltmann, a, a German theologian, argues that they're just the opposite. Um, that they're, that the miracles of Jesus are actually a restoration of nature. Death and decay and suffering are not the true order. He writes, when Jesus expels demons and heals the sick, He is driving out of creation the powers of destruction and is healing and restoring created beings who are hurt and sick. The lordship of God, to which the healing witness, restores sick creation to health. Jesus' healings are not supernatural miracles in a natural world. They're the only truly natural things in a world that is unnatural, demonized, and wounded. Right? The miracles are not a, they're not a supernatural break in things. They're just a return to the way things are supposed to be and the way things will be. Um, in a very helpful sermon that uh, Tim Keller preached on Matthew 8, talking about miracles, he makes the case, and I think it's, it's worth restating here, he makes the case that the miracles of Jesus make it clear that he's not any happier with the way things are, than we are right he's frustrated by the sin and the suffering and the injustice and the hardship and and they also remind us of his radical agenda and consequently our radical agenda right our work (laughs) is to make things right now we won't ultimately accomplish it but that is the assignment, right? We are to be part of, of, of restoring things and making things right and helping the sick and fighting cancer and all those things. Injustice, we are to be about that. That is God's agenda and Christ's miracles point us in that direction. Now, I want to jump back to the text, but before I do, let me just pause for a second and uh, Again, I know that some of you are thinking, I could be more excited, faithful, have greater belief, whatever, if some of these things actually worked for me. So, uh, I get that. Uh, there are times when I find myself thinking, Lord, a uh, little help here would be appreciated. Right? Most of the time. For me, that has been in the face of the pain other people are experiencing, uh, the suffering that that is going on in their life. And it just seems like, God, you know, why why don't you just fix some of this? It would be really convenient for a lot of us. Um, In recent months, recent weeks, really, I've sort of had uh, occasion to process a little bit more of this personally. I'm not quite 18 months from my stroke. But uh, in recent weeks, I've, I've come to the realization that it's unlikely uh, that I'm going to get any better. So I saw a neurologist a couple weeks ago, a, a, a doc who attends this church. He, he, I wasn't seeing him in like an official capacity. But I've got this file. I've got a 78-page neurological folder. And I've flipped through it several times. I don't understand any of it. The only words on the page I recognize are my name. After that... It doesn't mean anything to me and so I took this file to him and I said "Um, would you by chance uh, read this over and would you just talk to me I said you know I I, I'm very thankful for the neurologists that have helped me but they're not they don't give off the vibe that they just want to sit and talk about my situation and help me figure out what's going on so I need somebody to decipher this so he read it and we got together for lunch and I said so high level what's your takeaway? He said, well, first of all, you're very fortunate to be alive and to be doing as well as you are. And that's what I hear generally. From the, more medical, the more medical training people had, the more likely they are to use the word miracle when they describe my situation. Um, secondly, I, I said, uh, am I going to get any better? Because I would say I'm about 85% back. I've got some vision and di- dizziness and balance issues and a half dozen other mostly minor inconveniences. But I sort of stalled for the last six eight months I haven't been getting better I said will I get any better and he says yeah I don't think so I think you're done so I've just had to sort of make peace with that and say okay no, ninety-five percent of the time, I'm, I'm very. I, it's not work for me to do that. I feel very fortunate. I can, I can think. I can read. I can. I can do my job. I, I. I have my family's doing well. I learned a lot personally through this whole thing. It's not, and and I'm. I'm so much better off than most of the people I was in. I was in uh, physical therapy and neurological therapy with. I'm very thankful for where I'm at. 95% of the time, it's no problem. But there's about 5% of the time when I think, huh, really? You think this is a good idea, that I would, I would get knocked down like this? And, and so I'm trying to find the space that says, okay, I need to grieve the loss because I, you know, Two years ago, I was in my fifties, but I felt like I was in my forties. Now I'm in my fifties, I feel like I'm in my seventies. And that's loss. And there's a lot of things I just won't be able to do. So I gotta, I can't, I can't deny that. I can't put a happy face on that. There's loss. So I gotta, I gotta grieve the loss, but I can't do that without losing, while losing perspective. And, and there are things that I know to be true, right? I know God loves me. And I know that I can trust him. And I know that, that, that it will get better. Heaven's coming. Right? And, and those big ideas, I cannot move away from those big ideas. I have a friend who, a while back, <clears throat> lost his granddaughter to, with whom he was very close. Very tragic, uh, unexpected. And he's been grieving, as you could imagine. And I, when I spoke with him uh, a few weeks back, I asked him how he was doing and he said uh, he made an interesting comment he says well yeah you know, because what I'm realizing is I'm just a lot less tethered to this life than I was I'm a lot more ready for heaven than I was and I thought you know my pain my frustrations do not match his but I thought yeah I get that I think that I think that's part of what's going on for me and by the way when I sort of chase my tail on this and, you know, try and figure out what God's doing and how to, how to respond, and I, I just rehearse my options. What, what other option do I have? In John 6, uh, Jesus is just giving a very difficult teaching to the crowds, and many are leaving, right? He's talked about the cost of following him, and many are walking away. And so he turns to the disciples and he goes, how about you? Are you going to leave? And Peter, spokesman for the group, says, in essence, um and go where? <laughs> right, you alone have the words of eternal life. Where are we going to go? If we leave this, right? It's not like it gets better. And so um, I just I just would if you're frustrated, if you're feeling pushed down, say, yeah, you know, we're living in a broken world and God loves you and you can trust him. and he understands what's going on. He's not a God removed from... Uh, from ground level pain and suffering, right? He came and he died in her place. He gets it. And I would also point out to you that this woman—if uh, if I'm doing my math right—says she, so she showed up at the synagogue every week 18 years. That's like a thousand times. So you got to know that the <laughs> the first 999 times she's praying to get better, God doesn't answer that prayer. But in her case, then He did. So, Christ put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Verse 14. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue leader said to the people, there are six days for work. Note that he speaks to the people. He doesn't speak to Jesus. There are six days for work. So come and be healed on one of those days, not on the Sabbath, right? Jesus has healed this woman, but he did so by breaking their Sabbath rules. And and this religious leader, this Pharisee, he's mad about that. Verse 15, the Lord answered him, "'You hypocrites, doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water?' Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? When he said this, all his opponents were humiliated. The people were delighted with all the things he was doing. So, Jesus lets them have it. uh, And I think think there's a lot for us to learn in this little interchange. Interchange. The, the specifics of this interaction are about the Sabbath, which is, a, again, a big deal. It's a big deal in Scripture. Uh, it's a big deal to them. God created this day, I, and, and it seems like people make one of two big mistakes. Either they, they worship it or they treat it like it's any other day. And, and there's a lot of teaching on the Sabbath, and I don't really feel like I've got a handle on it. But I want to set that aside for now. I wanna use this interchange not to talk about the Sabbath, but to use it as a case study to talk about Christ's reaction to religion. Um, And and, and what I want us to do is to step into the criticism that Jesus levels against the Pharisees, who are the religious conservatives of the day, right? I I want us to own that just a little bit. It's very easy for us to write the Pharisees off. Oh, they were idiots. They were heavy-handed jerks, right? But in, in defense of the Pharisees, right, they were trying hard, as they understood it, to earn God's favor. And this guy here who Jesus goes after, <laughs> he's criticized for what he understands to be just a literal understanding of the fourth commandment. He's just trying to apply it the way he finds it in Exodus 34. And Jesus accuses him of, of missing the point, and Jesus gets quite frustrated. So I think, um, I think we can learn a lot from Christ's criticism of religious people. And uh, I, I've been, I find the whole thing, quite honestly, I find it pretty scary. Uh, I was at a conference a couple weeks ago, and one of the speakers said that the average person has 3.4 blind spots, okay? So I don't have that many, so some of you have more than that. (laughs) I think we're too quick to dismiss the criticism that we ought to lean into. So uh, about 20 years ago, a book came out by uh, Merrill Westfall, a seminary professor, uh, and it was called Suspicion and Faith, The Religious Uses of Modern Atheism. And Westfall argues that, we are, um, that we're just entirely too quick in writing off the, the critiques of Christianity that have been leveled by uh, people against it. And in particular, Westfall uh, says he actually, in his book, which is tough sledding, but in his book, he actually goes so far as to suggest that for Lenten devotional reading, we should be reading Freud, Marx, and Nietzsche. Uh, because he says that their criticisms are, uh, we write them off. You know, we say Freud, oh, come on. Freud was, the only people Freud talked to were people that had sexual hangups, and he's just weird, and nobody follows Freud anymore. And Marx, well, of course, who's going to pay attention to Marx? Marx, I mean, communism, that whole thing collapsed within itself. It's got a, it's Fatally flawed, and Nietzsche Nietzsche died insane. He couldn't even face the 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 the, the, the truth of his or the, the claims that he was making. So we're very quick to write these three off. And Westfall says, no, 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 no. Slow down. Um, yes, they're ultimately wrong, but there's a lot that they say about us that is spot on. So let me just step back for one second. Those of you who slept through uh, your your Western Civ class. Let me just say, uh, 100 years ago, 150 years ago, virtually everybody believed in God. Right? If you didn't believe in God, you were considered to be weird. You were a kook. You were a crank. Nobody trusted you. And then, um, and then everything started to change. And, and so about 100 years after that, lots of people did not believe in God. And, uh, and many people would point to that radical paradigm shift would point to the to the critiques that Freud, Marx, and Nietzsche made against religion in general, but Christianity in particular. And, and among the things that everybody sort of said when they were jumping on uh, the bandwagon about 150 years ago, 100 years ago, was, uh, look, soon nobody's going to believe in God. As soon as people clue in, get, get a little bit more education, they're going to realize that God doesn't exist. And... They said, that'll be a good day, right? Everything, everything will start to work out when that happens. Now, just in the margin, I'll say, uh, that actually, we're more religious today. The world is more religious today than it was 50 years ago. Uh, it, it didn't work out that way. The, the whole secularization theory is now widely refuted. And you can see that just, I mean, you see that when you read the news, right? So many of the stories are affected by religion. And you see that, by the way, when you watch Star Trek, uh, I did, I, I've never really watched Star Trek, but I was reading an article in which they pointed out the initial Star Trek back that came out in the 70s, right? Uh, there was no religion. There was no talk about God. And, and the, the, the quintessential ideal was Spock, who was all very, you know, rational and didn't understand emotions. You watch the new Star Trek, and there's lots of mysticism. Right, and the and the key guy now, Data, the the, Sto- the Spock prototype, he's a what a robot, a cyborg, but he wants to be in touch with feelings and emotions. Right, they just, they just point out that it's we're a lot more into religion today uh, than we were. And oh, by the way, when religion died out, the world didn't get better. Right. John Lennon sang his anthem "Imagine," you know, "Imagine" that every nobody believes, and it's they're just living for today; they're not thinking about life beyond that. Right? And that gave us Stalin and uh, Mao and Pol Pot and and leaders who killed tens of millions of their own people. It was a debacle. So what's what's happening today is secularism is crashing in on itself uh, in so many different ways, but but that's not what Westfall was talking about. He said, "Look." We owe it to ourselves to understand the critiques that these guys were making about the church. Freud, he said, was criticizing the way people use religion to justify their own behavior. And, and they, they create a God or a system that they can gain, that they can, they can be on top of. They don't want to change their behavior, right? but they don't want to feel guilty. And so there's there's this whole set of rituals that you can do, right? If you're guilty, well then go serve or go to church or repent or build a new wing on the church. Remember the last scene in one of the Godfather movies where Michael's got all these people being killed. but But it's going back and forth between the murders and him at a baptism in the church, right? So do what you want to do. Do what you want to do, but just justify it to yourself that you're going to build a wing on the church and you're going to feel okay. That's what Freud, in part, was saying. Right? That we, a lot of people use religion to justify not changing their behavior. And Marx, he goes in a different direction. Um, he, he's famous for the line, religion is the opiate of, of the masses. Uh, he, he's not talking about this being a pleasure narcotic at the time. It was a painkiller. And so what he's saying is that people are using religion to deaden the pain in their own conscience for the way they treat others. And he says that we people use religion to justify excluding the people who are not like them. You don't look like me, you don't have the same color of skin as I do, you don't have the same uh nationality as I do, you don't have the same you don't believe what I do. God is on my side, I'm justified in putting you down. Or, you do look like me. You are like me. We're in the same country, whatever. But you're poor and I'm not. So, I'm just going to tell you, it'll, it'll all be okay in the next life. And I don't have to, I don't have to deal with that. Right? The, the Shawshank Redemption. The, the warden, if you remember that guy. Right? He's very religious. But he feels superior to all the prisoners. And he's a jerk. And he's a thief. He's just like them. But he can't see it. Or don't even have to go to a movie. I mean, this is what, tragically, horrifically, this is what the Puritans did. I'm a big fan of the Puritans. Most people don't like the Puritans. Who wants to be called a Puritan or a Puritanical? I think the Puritans did so many things right. But they were blind to the fact that they left Europe because they didn't have religious freedom. And when they came over here, they denied religious freedom to people. Right? It was, it was a blind spot. And then with Nietzsche, his, his critique is that uh, religion, like everything else, is just an effort to get power and to hold it over uh, other people. So, now I know, some of you are thinking, oh, good grief, Woodruff, Freud, uh, Nietzsche, uh, Mao, give me a break. I, I'm doing this for, for two reasons. First of all, because uh, I think these criticisms are actually very fair. And and at least in, for me, as I was reading them, um, I found that they, uh, because they came through a different medium, that I could see them in ways that I hadn't been able to see them before. Secondly, the second reason I'm sharing all this is because everything that Freud, Marx, and Nietzsche said, Jesus said 1,900 years earlier. Right? I mean, he's he was he was way ahead of them. Right, Freud, Freud is is saying you're you're creating a god that you can control. What is Jesus always saying? What is he saying in the text today to this religious leader? You think that because you're keeping all these rules, these bizarre rules you've created, that you God now owes you? Or you think that because you're tithing on mint and cumin, that that somehow you're earning God's favor? why you while you are blind to what's going on with this woman's life. Right? When the, when, the, when the young lawyer comes to Jesus and says, What must they do to be saved? And Jesus says, What? Oh, well, what, is, what, is the, what does the law say? And the guy says, Well, I love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, Okay, how are you doing on that? And the guy says, I'm I'm good. I'm fine. I, I got it nailed. And and so, in other words, I can feel self-righteous, I can feel approved. I got it down. And what does Jesus say? He tells this guy the story of the Good Samaritan. The net-net is, you don't even understand who your neighbor is. You're clueless as to what's going on. Marx, when I, when I read the Sermon on the Mount, I often will say, Karl Marx didn't say anything as radical as Jesus is saying right here. Right? And, and we get it from the prophets, from Amos and Isaiah and Jeremiah. They're always... on the the war path against people that are using religion and God to justify oppressing other people. And they go, to the extent that you're doing that, you don't know who God is. So there's a lot here to think about. Now, let me just say, in the margin again, uh, Freud, Marx, and Nietzsche, their critiques uh, actually turn in on themselves. And so that's part of the reason secularism is collapsing. So Freud says, uh, you know what? Uh, you just, you create a God out of wish fulfillment so that you've got, you know, you, you can feel good about things. Okay, Dr., uh, Dr. Freud, how about this? How about you deny that God exists so you can feel good about things? Right. When I was a college pastor, it took me a while. Eventually I came to understand that the that the number one reason most college students, in my experience, not everybody, but the number one reason most college students stop believing in God, they came out of a vibrant youth group and then they come to college and they fall away. The number one reason it's not a it's not a philosophy professor, it's not some deconstructionist postmodern English lit teacher, it's none of that. They just start, <laughs> they started having sex and they don't want to stop, and so they want to be able to justify doing what they want to do. Right? They started, they started doing all kinds of things they didn't get to do before, and they don't want to go back. And so they go, if I believe in God, then I'm in trouble here. I'm gonna to have to change my behavior. Well, guess what? I'll just, I'll choose not to believe. I'll go with what my professor said. And the, the arguments that they would put forward were not strong. It's obvious. It, that wasn't what was persuading them. And so Freud and Freudianism has collapsed in on itself when you realize, wow, the wish fulfillment probably goes the other way. And Marx, again, you you don't even have to discredit Marx because Marx and communism, is it, it doesn't work, right? This idea that we're going to do this for the people, clearly every communist leader, every revolutionary arguing that we're going to do this for the good of the people just made a big, huge power grab for themselves and oppressed the people. So this whole thing is is collapsing in on itself. And, and by the way, you see that if you, and I put this in my notes, if, if you want to go a little bit deeper, the New York Times and Atlantic Monthly, they're running articles all the time now by people that are saying, you know what, uh, I hated religion and, and I was a thoroughgoing uh, Marxist or I was a Freudian or I was I was a nihilist or I was this or I was that, but it doesn't work. I can't make it work, and I now realize I had a dogmatic belief in non-belief, and it is just a completely inconsistent approach. So, so they're moving away, and it's collapsing in on itself. But here's the problem: they say, "But I hate religion." So, what's the solution? Right, <laughs> the, the the critique that they've offered against religion has just critiqued themselves. So they now realize that their position doesn't work. But they hate religion. What's the solution? Well, the solution is Jesus. (laughs) The most anti-religious person out there. I said earlier that the miracles of Christ were proof of who he was and that they were a pointer to the way things were supposed to be. They also, the miracles of Christ were also a pattern. And they're a pattern unlike what you see with anyone else the the miracles of christ is christ serving other people right he doesn't he comes down from heaven he gives up power and he dies in our place it's the most upside-down thing. He's not guilty. Freud, Marx, and Nietzsche offer criticism, but they fall prey to their own criticism. Jesus offers the same criticisms, but he doesn't fall prey to it because he's altogether different. And he's not, he's not holding on to that power, right? He's living to love and to serve other people. And I think we see that in this in this text. He's the most anti-religious person out there. So, Two takeaways from this sermon. Number one, I think it's very fair to say we need to lean in and find the truth in the criticisms that are leveled against the church by Freud, Marx, Nietzsche, and others because there's often a lot of truth in the criticisms that come our way. We're blind to our blind spots. And and we're often guilty of all the kinds of things that Jesus was, was speaking against. And secondly, we need to be very clear. That what we are inviting other people to come into, to join us in, deep and other things, is not religion. It's grace, right? This is not, this is not, come be good with us so that God will love us and we'll be better than other people. No, it's we are broken, we are fallen, we got all your problems and some unique ones of our own. But there is a God who loves us where we are, right? That's what we invite people into. Let me pray for us. Lord God, may we um, see our blind spots. May the uh, criticisms that Christ and others have uh, highlighted in Scripture and other places against our self-righteousness, our power plays, whatever they may be. May we see them clearly and grieve them and own them and confess them and move in the direction of Christ who is serving other people and giving himself away. And may we be salt and light as we move deeper into that spot. May we be salt and light for those whose world is crumbling around them for whatever reason. Whether it's just events not working out or whether they're finally waking up to the fact that, uh, that the... That the intellectual framework they're hanging everything on is completely uh, broken and doesn't work. May they find through us in you uh, your love and your grace. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.